Hello, I'm Claire Southworth and you're listening to Talking Flutes. Today I'm at home in Hove in East Sussex by the sea and sitting opposite me is Wissam Bustani, my great friend of 40 years since being at college together, an inspirational musician and humanitarian. So hello Wiz. Hi, it's been a long time. It's been a long time, but lovely to see you and for you to make the journey here on your lovely motorbike. Yeah, it's a beautiful sunny It is a sunny day. day, I know. It's always sunny here in Hove. <laughs> so let me give our listeners a quick resume of your life and then we'll have a good old chat okay. about it. So there are four very important aspects to Wiesam's career. At least. Yeah, at least. Flutist, teacher, composer, more recently conductor. He's achieved so much as an orchestral musician and soloist, developing a wonderful duo partnership with pianist Alexander Schramm. Amazing audiences, by the way, they both perform from memory, something I've never seen before, bringing a completely heightened experience and intensity into their adventurous music making. Wilsam has been a flute professor at Trinity Laban London and the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester, where we both studied. Mm. And more recently, Wiesam has also ventured into composing. His experiences of the war in Lebanon have greatly influenced his outlook on both life and music, developing an intensity, commitment, deep sadness and spirituality that filter into the sound of his flute. In 1995, he founded Towards Humanity, an international initiative working with musicians and charities, helping communities to suffer from the tragedies of war. This project was inaugurated in February 1995 at the Royal Abbot Hall in London, followed in 1997 by a knighthood from the Lebanese government in recognition of his music and peace work. And 1998, he was presented with the Crystal Award at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. During his late teens, Wissam's stepfather, flute teacher and musical mentor at the time, Emil Nune, told him something he would never forget. The flute is too small for you. I see you as a conductor one day. Well, that day is here now. And Wissam has formed a new orchestra called Pro Youth Philharmonia, which has just given its first concert series in the UK. So, wow, Wissam, where do we start? I think we can end here. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a CV. It's fantastic. So many different elements to your life. Well, it's just happened. Uh, I follow my heart, uh, and um, that's where that's led me. And, um, yeah, if, uh, if you follow your heart, uh, you wind up doing the things that you believe in and want to do. Simple, really. Sounds very simple. Mm. When did you first come to the UK? I was 17, so that was uh, the middle of the war in Beirut. Uh, we had tried to leave the war on several occasions I came we came for three months before that when I was 15 I went to the Purcell school for three months they went back things got worse we left again for Quebec and Canada for nine months things got better we moved back and then it got even worse and that's when my parents said enough you go to England and you study there. I became a boarder at Cheatham School of Music. I did my A-levels there. Yes. I remember well, because you used to turn up at That's the flute classes That's when I met at, you. at uh, the Northern uh, and sit and listen and occasionally play. And it was Very horrible. occasionally, but it was definitely my listening to you. I remember very distinctly the 
you just sticking into the Chachaturian concert, the first movement in a class, and I had never heard anything like it. Oh, that's nice for you to say. Yeah. I, I, remember, I remember learning that because I was performing it in London, and I, I, I feel terrible now because I can't remember who with. And it's, I mean, you know, because you've recorded the Chachaturian, it was an exhausting concerto is, but how incredible is that music? Mm, just fantastic. Yeah. So you have recorded it? I have recorded it. With Where the, can people hear it? Uh, it's on CD, uh, Nimbus Records have released it, and it's on Spotify and iTunes. And, Fantastic. And, yeah. and also then, if people want to know more about you, they can look at your website. What's that address? Yeah, uh, web, my, I've got two websites now, one for the orchestra and one for me. Um, so, wisambustani.com. Uh-huh. And the orchestra is profil.org.uk. Uh, Great. Okay. So... You came to the UK and went to Cheatham School of Music, and then you entered the Royal Northern. Mm. And then when you graduated, what happened then? When I graduated from Manchester, I moved down to London. Uh, at that time, my stepsisters were living and studying here at the Academy and at the Royal College. We lived together for a while, and I had soon after that, by that time, I was playing the Chamber Orchestra of Europe. Yeah. And that was my passport into many, many good situations. And uh, I did my big Mohol debut soon after, a couple of years after leaving Manchester. So uh, at that time, I was building uh, probably what you would describe as your typical freelance career, hoping to get employed by various orchestras. Uh, But for me, the Chamber Orchestra of Europe was the orchestra for me, and... um, because of Claudio Abado and uh, conducting the LSO, I wound up freelancing with the LSO a little bit and a few other, London Bach Orchestra and other, but uh, the London soloists. Yes. Uh, um, But for me, the COE was the the thing that I loved. Uh, But even that couldn't hold me for much longer. I felt... I needed to leave and uh, play the flute on my own terms. So you felt restricted by the orchestral environment? Uh, Restricted is one word. I also felt um, concerned about the people around me, Uh, people reading newspapers, uh, instead of counting 60 bars rest. At that time, there were no mobile phones. Mm -hmm. Imagine now. Um, I just felt that uh, the atmosphere of kind of politics and cynicism and jealousies and I could see it pushing me into a way of living and a way of behaving that I didn't want to be part of. Uh, And I think um, a lot of people when I left Orkza said, well, Wissam is an arrogant person. I mean, is he any better than us? Why? Why should he be a soloist? Uh, what uh, I really didn't do it to show off. I really felt that um, I needed time for myself so that I could let the music that I felt needed to come out have the space to come out. And of course, to create the space to practice in a way that would allow it to come out. Because I really feel that too many of us are trying to do too many things. And uh, for me, um, 
a soloist is not just playing a concerto. It's a way of living. It's a way of preparing music in a way. And I felt I had I needed to live up to that. And I did that, and I never regretted it. Uh, probably had I stayed in orchestras, I might have five or six more CDs to my name. Uh, but I don't think I'd have been able to develop the kind of personal, uh, what's the word, brand, if you like, to my flute playing, had I not given myself the space and time to do that. Yes, it's interesting how how so many people, when they leave the environment of, of a conservatoire, yeah. if they have put in enough work that they can evolve into something that's far more individual. And that's what you did. You've always been very creative and you've, you've not gone with the norm. You've actually tried to find your own path. Well, everyone tries to do that with hindsight in their own way. And um, uh, it's just that during the formative years... We really, it really does get drummed into us that uh, pretty much the only career path is the orchestral path. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. and, and there's so much more to music than that. It is one of the greatest paths, and certainly the music is on such a high level. But uh, there are so many different ways to experience uh, and receive and give music besides the orchestral path. And I think um, trying to force that and everyone down that path almost uh, denies people their own space and, uh, and pathway into discovering what makes them tick too soon. You know, and you're, Before you know it, you're, after every orchestral audition, uh, and then you're, you feel a failure if you don't, don't quite manage that well, I think that's the that's the problem I think a lot of a lot of musicians feel they failed if they haven't gained that orchestral position and yet there's so much more to music yeah. and both you and I have have managed to sort of forge a career that's on right. many different aspects of, of music yeah. not just the or, the orchestral side of things which as you said is fantastic but yeah. there's so many other fantastic things mm. it's interesting you talked about um being restrained almost if you maybe are just going through that uh, orchestral path um i often feel that that you know when we audition students for college mm. we we pick students who show so much potential and then often feel that during their four years or three years or five years at college we actually sort of squash that creativity in order to get them playing to a particular level and they lose that they lose that creativity it'd be lovely to find a, a different a different way yes wouldn't there yeah all those requirements that college uh, hurdles and of course it's like a funnel uh, everyone has to pass those hurdles at the yes. same time whereas every person is different and has their own time to respond to life and to understand themselves and yet we insist on funneling everyone down that system yeah that same uh, way yeah that same way it's it's i don't think it's done maliciously on purpose but those systems are counterproductive and as a teacher i'm constantly at odds with the system trying to yes which brings into your you have a method called love in terms of your teaching which addresses just what we've been talking about i hope so yeah so tell us a little bit about your approach in teaching. 
it is so simple that uh, some people might laugh at it. Uh, I really feel, uh, I often talk to students when they first come, and trying to elicit a discussion about why they love the flute, what it is they want to do with their music, you know. Because um, I've always felt that the, there are two, two big questions. There's how to play the flute and why you play the flute. And too often we gravitate around how to play the flute, whereas the why behind something is a much bigger question. It's the motivating question. Uh, so if your motivation is on a very high level, then probably that's going to influence the how of how you play the flute. So I often ask students, so if there was one word you would like to take away with you, you were only allowed to take one word with you and throw away everything else, what would that word be? And for me, it's the word love. Because uh, love uh, is the state of being where we become bigger than ourselves, we sensitize ourselves to ourselves and to other people, love is where respect lies, love is where motivation lies, and love is where discipline lies ultimately. So if you really live the word love, with the people you're with, in every moment, whether you're playing the flute or not, you are in touch with the single most powerful motivating force. And um, if you apply it to every aspect of moving your finger or, you, or how you move your lip or what is it you're searching in a sound or what you're dedicating your music to in life, and if you use that that love as like a light that you shine on any challenge, uh, any uh, um, it transforms it the challenge, and it transforms your ability as a person to to overcome those challenges. Um, and I know from my own playing when my love deserts me, I'm nothing. It's just a sound. But when the love is there, something happens. Something transformative happens. And what seems like a sound becomes an experience, becomes a feeling, an emotion that can change life. And I really believe that. And I want that to be in every moment of contact with music. So that's why I call it a method called love. It's a, it's, it's a way of working. Yes. Just like you pick up an exercise and you see the method of Marcel Moise or the method of Claire Southworth. For me, the method of love in all its simplicity. And that's, that must be quite hard because you know, when you think about students yeah. working hard to yeah. achieve with all the, the pressures on them to achieve, and you know in practice sometimes things don't go well, yeah. it's very difficult to love what you're doing when you're struggling to achieve. So sometimes that sense of trying to achieve actually stops you in your tracks. Yes, it does. And that uh, it, uh, you have to kind of figure out a way. Uh, when, when you can't achieve something, that something becomes your enemy. 
it's stopping you from what you want. So, uh, to me, that's at the heart of technique. Uh, when you technique for me is not training muscles; it's training attitudes and training mind. Training the mind, mind mm. over matter, exactly. Mm. So uh, you 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 hit a wall. Uh, of course, you're going to get frustrated, but if you dig around it and start understanding why you hit the wall, what is it about your way of thinking that's caused that wall to happen? You start to unravel the challenge and understand it mm. and almost begin to love it for yeah. what it's teaching you. Which leads us into two very important aspects of your teaching and your playing, improvisation and memory. Yes, those are like what I say. If I have two legs to stand on, those are my two legs, memory and improvisation. Personally, I think that that has to start really from... A very early, no, early age. Didn't with me. No. No. I didn't start improvising until we left college. Uh, Trevor used to tell us to to improvise, but I couldn't respond to that because we had to stand in a circle, uh, uh, and there was some kind of harmony or rhythm that was imposed, and I couldn't relate to it. Yes, I remember, I remember those sessions. I couldn't relate uh, I, to it either. It felt like a test. Was, I felt very self-conscious. It was, it, was a, it was a test. But I remember when I first um, got my first ever flute, that the first thing I did was improvise. But I didn't know it was improvisation. And the first tune I ever played was Jethro Tull, Living in the Past, because I'd heard it on the radio. And so I played without music and used my ears... And it was wonderful. And then, of course, you start formal lessons and you're given a book and you play from the book and you have to get things right. It's not about uh, music and emotion and communicating. It's about correctness. Mm. And unfortunately, I think that continues right the way through till people leave college. And it takes quite a strong character to realise that that's happened and then yeah. move away from that. You, you, you've hit it on the head, but you've also... Uh, everything you do before you do something new it seems like an impossible task how many times have we confronted that in our lives from childhood um, and yet once you do it once or twice the door is open and you can continue to do it but that to overcome that initial block that I don't play for memory or I don't memorize yeah. You, you convince yourself that every time you say you can't do something, you convince yourself that you can't do it until you try. Once you try to do something, you're on the winning side of yourself. And that happens moment by moment. Everything in life, uh, from uh, getting into a college to deciding on a long-term relationship or getting married or getting divorced or moving house or changing career or... Uh, doing something new is daunting and yet we we move on in life and once you've opened that door you don't look back and those moments are the formative moments of our life and if we get used to backtracking and just sticking to what we know how do we grow and that's something no teacher can teach you that's something you do out of your desire to grow and that's, that's 
a really important point that I think it has to come from the individual yeah. has to want to do it yeah. themselves. And I think that when you're being so highly trained week after week where you have to present certain elements of, of, of technique and Well, I'll give you an things. example, Claire. I mean, I mean, I'm the person who pro- probably people are sick of me talking about memorizing. and uh, But I hate it when college tells you for your third year you have to learn something from memory. What a killjoy that is. What a killjoy. What a killjoy. That's not any motivation when no. you're forced to do something. It has to become the culture. It has to become for every lesson, for every... Uh, for, for, for the, the love for it needs to be uh, shown, proved yeah. uh, for people to want to do it. But to force someone to do it? No, it's just another trap. Yeah, it's an obstacle trap. or a hurdle to jump through. I, I also at college, my first year exam, there were two of us, we were told two days before the exam, oh, by the way, from memory. Two days? Two days before. And I thought, I, I didn't understand. I didn't know because I had not done that before. Yeah. I remember playing, the. I got the first two notes wrong <laughs> because I was so worried about it. And luckily, there was someone on the panel there who was very sensible and wise and said, it's okay, you can use the music. Uh-huh. And then, because they could tell that I was having such a problem. And that sort of scarred me uh-huh. for many, many years. And it wasn't until I left college that when, when I started to do it for myself, but in a very controlled, not controlled way, in a very relaxed way. Uh, forgiving way. Forgiving way. And that you you learn how to, to work through it and to That's enjoy exactly it. That's exactly said what, what I say. It's not what you do, it's why you do it. The, the reason why it worked for you finally is that because you were in touch with the why, whereas when something is forced on you and you're not in touch, uh, convinced yeah. in your heart that you're doing something that's going to open you up instead of trap you and... Uh, demolish you and make you fearful yeah. uh, and certainly I always say you know if you if you fear something you're never going to to really do uh, do that thing well that you need to be nerves are good you know the anticipation yeah, of something but I, I agree not and disagree fear. I agree and disagree if you said if you fear something what did you say if you fear something if you fear something you don't necessarily do it well if you're fearful yes, of what's of but if you that that could be that that uh, anything that scares us we avoid you don't really mean that i didn't mean that no so what do you but mean but it's minute when you when you have to do something yeah. when you have to uh, so for an exam you have to to play a piece of memory because that's what it's that's what's written down but you don't have the tools with which to do it, yeah. there's a different fear. That's right. Um, which means that you probably will fail. And yeah. that is very damaging for you mm. mentally. And so you actually have to find your own way of working through that fear yeah. uh, so that you you overcome it and you suppress it and understand, and understand it. What's, what's it. causing it. Like understanding nerves. If you understand nerves and how it affects you, yeah. they become your friend. They don't become your exactly. enemy. Exactly, they become their motivator. Yeah, yeah. How did you manage to persuade your accompanist, Alexandra, to play the piano parts from memory? Well, there's a short answer and there's a long answer, but I think I need to give you the long answer. Okay. Uh, because sometimes 
the seed of something hap- uh, kind of gestates and doesn't actually grow until a long time later. Once I was on tour in South America with the Australian pianist Pierce Lane. You must know him from the Academy. Yes. Uh, um, and we were touring two programs, and one night in the Peruvian, the British Embassy in Peru, we were doing a concert. I played Peace by Dave Heath. Uh, I think I played some Donizetti or something, and then we ended the program with the Frank Sonata. And we were just about to go on for the last piece, and Piers said, you know, I've played this Frank with violins and violas and cellos and flutes for so many years. I'm sure I could, I know it. I said, go for it. That's and scary. On the, on the spur of the moment, just there and then, we just went out and played the Frank Sonata without the music, both of us. Were you already going I to was, do it without the music? I, I, I've always played without the music since I was 28, 6, 7. Mm. Uh, but I'd never gone on stage with the pianist not playing with the music. And I can honestly tell you that, that something happened, that the, the way we connected to each other. Because when both of you are playing on an equal level, both of you could fall at any point. So the way you play has to be so convincing that mm. you protect the other person from losing confidence. Yeah. So both of you could fall at any point. Like being on a tightrope. We're both, the same thing at stake for both of us. Yes. And I'd never experienced that before. Mm. He's a very good pianist. Uh, and I was always playing from memory. But there was something unequal about it. Um, and that was the first time we played where every note had like... Uh, the notes had umbilical cords attached to them between us. Mm-hmm. And the tempo was right. The balance was right. The, the, the energy levels kind of became cohesive. And then, of course, Piers is very busy. And years later, I met uh, Alex. And uh, as a student first, accompanying exams, uh, eventually he wound up playing for my classes at Trinity and and then the first time I heard him improvise, I saw a side of him that I had not seen before. And then that's when we started talking, and I said, I've always wanted someone that would be willing to memorize recitals with me. He said, I'll do it. And we never looked back since. I remember hearing you do that for the first time uh, with Alexander. And I remember sitting in the audience feeling... Very nervous. Yes, that's been said before, once or twice. Um, and I think it's because it was so new, that never seen that before, you know, wanting you to be able to, to do it and not wanting you to fall. Yeah, but remember that you're not the normal audience. You're a flute player and you know what it takes. The normal audience doesn't even notice that there's a music stand there or not. They don't notice, they're just going to hear. And they might not even notice that you had or didn't have the music stand. But you, because you you know how difficult it is, Hmm. you're projecting that onto the situation a little bit. But there was a completely different feel to that sort of concert. More of a sense of freedom, of sort of being more more creative, more inspiration with what you're trying to say. It felt like maybe you, you, because you take the music away, you have to listen so much better. So there was a completely different atmosphere in that concert. 
which I also hadn't experienced before. Well, I'm glad. I must say, uh, just to qualify that, memorizing can have some negative effects too, if I'm to be honest with you. Yep, and I've heard a lot of that too. Yeah, like, uh, you see, what it's great at is giving you structure and consolidation. And the thing is, um, you become so consolidated that you can lose some spontaneity. Mm. Yes, but you're different. I mean, for you, it works fantastically well. The, the times when I've heard it doesn't work well is when people have just learned a piece note by note without any feel for the emotion behind the music or any feel for the phrasing. And it's just an exercise in learning, yeah. not an exercise in communicating. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to actually help a student understand that you still need to communicate and to get in touch with the music rather than learn by rote. That's right. And that's where love comes into it. Yeah, so that's, that's the difference. That's what you do differently. So I think when you're trying to encourage students to play without the music, it's very important how you approach it yeah. and, and to allow them to fail, mm-hmm. that it's not a problem. That's right. Um, and so you nurture that, the beginnings, and you help them blossom rather than criticise right. for not doing it. It's difficult difficult to get right. It's difficult. It's about having a sense of priorities because there are all kinds of mistakes we make. What is it that you want to give in a recital? Perfection? Yeah, obviously not. Obviously not. Obviously not. First of all, perfect, perfection is overrated, uh, not to mention doesn't exist. The beauty of life is in its imperfect. There's nothing symmetrical about life. There's nothing... Uh, there's, there's something perfect about life. It's perfect in its imperfection. Uh, and uh, uh, to understand that as a human being and learn to look beyond imperfection and see the beauty in life and people, in spite of things that annoy us from time to time, or um, you need to have a very strong sense of priority about what's, what music means to you, what you want to give with it. And then once that pressure is gone, then you get closer to perfection hmm. because that fear of making a mistake disappears to a large extent, which is what often causes mistakes in the first place. Yeah, I, I find that a lot of, big generalization, but a lot of the, yeah. the players that are coming out of colleges now are not in touch with their emotional being and not in touch with the music enough. And it's a case of getting things right, getting the pitch right, the notes right, the rhythm right, getting everything correct. Yeah. Um, and I know I've often disagreed with people on panels when you know, you know judging judging people either in final recitals or auditions, in that, for me, in terms of criteria, my first criteria is always that emotional connection, the emotional meaning. Does somebody talk to me? Do they speak to me through mm-hmm. their music? Not whether they got it right. That's right. But. That doesn't often happen, unfortunately. Unfortunately, it doesn't. It, it, this, this, uh, I thousand percent agree with you. I think often it doesn't happen because feelings are personal. So what works for one person on an emotional level might grate with another person. So the easiest way to agree on a panel is on things like getting it right and intonation and kind of... Uh, it's, it can be relatively, even though intonation is very subjective, uh, to, uh, 
but it's easier to agree on those things than on interpretation. Um, And, of course, there are different styles of playing that are very personal. Um, So on juries, uh, well, music should never have become a competition in the first place. No. But it does have to be judged in some way in for some people way. to of a- achieve their diplomas and degrees and yeah. so yeah. that it there, there has to be a place for yeah. it but as I, said, I think there was only one panel i ever sat on where there was another very well-known flute player who would say things like i don't like that style of playing but i really appreciate what they're doing i understand what they're doing uh yep. you know i love their musicality it's not what i do but I recognise what they're doing, and then would give a mark that was that responded to that. Yes, person. rather than saying I would, I don't don't play that, so I don't like that, so no mark. I've always tried to fight in college. I didn't succeed because the college likes to have like a system of grading and that's consistent across all instruments. Although they always make an exception for singers for some reason, like with scales. Yeah. We're, we're, we have to have a certain way of playing scales. Yes. Singers are at the northern, I remember, don't have that system. Mm. They're allowed uh, to choose what suits their voice. I respect That's that a good. lot. But I've always... You know how they have a box for technique, a box for yes. presentation, a box for musicality? Yes. I've always wanted a box for risk-taking, mm. where... It's a box that, uh, or or memory, because for me, memorizing represents taking that extra risk, yeah. where you're willing to fall down completely for the sake of living up to the higher dimension. And uh, I've always wished that, that without forcing people to memorize in an exam situation, you offered them a bonus. Yeah, that's really interesting you should say that because we it, at. Uh my conservatoire there was there's a, a concerto exam which is from memory okay. and if you don't play from memory if you suddenly think the day before I can't do this you have 10% taken off taken off and I always say wouldn't it be wonderful is if you have your exam and if you play from memory you get 10% added well, and uh, that is your motivation exactly exactly so you, you mark the grade someone gets a a 68 and automatically if someone plays with a conviction and risk taking you get rewarded two or three grades um, whether you fail or not that's the point so you might make a mistake or two but the fact that you took a risk gets acknowledged I think that to me but it was never taken up it was seen as too uh, uh, difficult to manage, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we have to start our our own course, we <laughs> and put these things into place. <laughs> but anyway, that's you know, there's obviously memory is a huge part. Improvisation, that's the huge other leg. part. Now, the, the, what I wanted to remind you about was that many years ago, you were. I heard you play on a BBC program, a live program, Pebble Mill at One. And you did an improvisation. It was stunning. And I thought, wow, I've never heard, I've never heard him play that. I don't know what it is. It was, your, it was your own. Do you remember what it was? Did you ever write it down? No. 
So it was just an on the spur of the moment. Yeah, quite often on TV, you, uh, they they ask you to, or on radio, uh, uh, you got a very. The program has to end exactly at six o'clock, mm. and then there's a bit of a gap. And quite often, this is the the easy thing to do because Syrinx lasts two minutes yep. twenty two seconds. If you can't speed it up, <laughs> but with an improvisation, you can tailor music to end exactly when it needs to i just tell them just give me a sign 30 seconds from the end and then i can wind down but this was a beautifully structured improvisation oh i don't know it had a a a wonderful sort of beginning a middle and an end it felt it felt complete so maybe maybe you need to go back to the bbc and ask (laughs) ask the listener and then and then write it down because it was absolutely beautiful well, that's when I first started improvising. That's what I wanted uh, um, to give a sense of traveling and conclusion. Yeah. And if you can understand that, every piece we play has that in it. Yeah. That that journey, and if that journey doesn't happen, I don't think we've really played with any sense of depth or meaning. Mm-hmm. Really, we've just played the notes. So, do you still use improvisation in concerts? Oh yeah, uh, last year um, I, I, had, I was under a lot of pressure. You know, I've had two knee operations in the last year. I only had one. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've had quite a crazy year, but uh, so I didn't uh, and I didn't feel motivated to learn new music. So I lent on repertoire that I knew well. I played the Frank Sonata, and I started the concert with a Doppler, Doppler Hungarian uh, fantasy. And Scotty and me went out in the middle and improvised for 10 minutes. And that was my, my adventure for the night. Uh, 10 minutes, we didn't agree on what note to start, what key to play in, what fasts, nothing. We just walked on with a completely open slate and played for about 10 minutes. It's, it's a real roller coaster. I'm sure. It wakes up the senses mm. so much. I mean, you have to be so alert to catch the, any half opportunity and make it work, you know. Um, I love that. I love that. It wakes up the senses like nothing, certainly not like Heineken does. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, have you got perfect pitch? Uh, I think I have relative pitch. So if I, if, if I hear a note... If I translate it into a flute sound, yes. I can probably guess the pitch. That's that's similar with me too. I can, if I if I think of the beginning of a of a well known flute piece, I've got the pitch of of a yeah, particular I can note. Sense the color from yeah. the color of the yeah. note. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. I think what we're going to do, we're going to sort of draw things to a close now, okay. and we're going to have another podcast with you because we have an awful lot more to look into. In terms of your orchestra, and your... I get to see you again. Can yes, you? you do absolutely. Um, and talk about all the other facets of your wonderful, wonderful career. But for now, we Sam, thank you ever so much. Thanks, Claire. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are a podcast production by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.
www.thepeopleshow.com.